Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, we had an excellent conversation today with Andrea Fanuk, is the, the co-CEO, co-founder of Remsoft, a, a software firm based in Fredericton, but that has uh, offices in multiple places around the world. It's one of the longest surviving software companies uh, you know, that was that was started in New Brunswick. It's about 30 years old, and I think it's a very inspiring story. She, When she started the company, there were very few uh, female founders, particularly in the IT sector, so she was really a trailblazer, and they had an interesting technology, and I think the listeners are going to find it's a very interesting story. Yeah, I'm, this is one of the um, kinds of uh, stories that I really like to uh, to cover because uh, this is an untold story. Not many people would have heard of Rimsoft. It's a specialty uh, uh, IT company in the forestry industry, obviously. Um, uh, but um, the fact that it was developed uh, in New Brunswick and expanded, uh, you know, it's got uh, clients on several continents, uh, 150 clients, uh, uh, you know, in different places. Uh, these are big companies doing, uh, you know, uh, really uh, long-term planning using the software that uh, Andrea and her team have developed right in, the, in, in New Brunswick. It's, you know, it, this reminds me, I, I, you know, I think I told you this before, I was a judge for the top 50 CEOs you know, a few times in the past. And, uh, you know, I, I would see companies like this that I'd never heard of. And they'd have hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. Never heard of them. Like, you know, I kind of thought I was well informed of what was going on in Atlanta, Canada until I did that judging uh, part. There's so many good stories that uh, that, are, that are happening in our region. And I'm really glad that we can, we can highlight them uh, on the podcast because this is a very successful com- company. And by the way, it's a head office company for Fredericton. And we talked about the value of head office companies because they're well-paying jobs. They don't tend to leave, you know, if the founders are in that, in that community, they're not moving, which means they, you know, they're a long-term uh, player, um, very important uh, to, um, to the economies in those, in those communities where they're located. So it's a really, it's a really interesting story. And, you know, uh, it's, it's, I find it coincidental that, just a couple of weeks after we do a podcast with uh, Sandpiper Ventures, who dedicated to IT startups uh, run by women, here's here's a woman who did it 30 years ago and didn't have the support of, of, of that kind of fund to help help uh, develop her company. And we talked about that in the podcast as well. Yeah, I mean, she they bootstrapped it all the way, but there's so many. This one ticks so many boxes. There was a UNB connection. Originally, there was a New Brunswick uh, uh, as initial customers in the forestry sector. Uh, so, you know, that, sa- that story about getting good at something here and then taking it to the world, this is very much the story of Remsoft. Um, she gets into a number of very specific things around uh, uh, the need to recruit diverse workforces. But I thought one of the things she talked about was this, this reality of so many entrepreneurs sort of topping out at around a million or two in sales. And it's almost like a, a ceiling, right? And I know, Don, I know you certainly broke through that that ceiling in your business, but that's a tough nut to crack for a lot of uh, a lot of small businesses. Well, it, it, I think it talks to the, a certain lack of ambition in entrepreneurs in our region. You know, they, they get to a comfortable spot. They make a good 
they make start making a, a reasonably good living and they you know, sort of why 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 would I want to you know go beyond this like you know there's a limitation and I think it's more attitude than it is anything else it's, and, and and maybe they need more mentoring to be able to do that maybe they just get to a spot they don't know how to get to the next level I'm not sure but I think that that's uh, that's a that's a fairly common thing that that I've seen as well in our region and and and, and I, it exists in other regions, but you know our our business community is proportionally smaller than anywhere else in Canada, so it probably hurts our region in terms of economic growth uh, because of that attitudinal difference. I guess, yeah, yeah, because the larger firms are more likely to become exporters. They're more likely to be productive. They can have professional management teams. So not every business has to grow to a ten or twenty or fifty million dollar business, but you want a certain share. Uh, as as Andrea talked about, you want a certain share of your businesses to break through and become those players, and and she has certainly done that, and you you did that as well. The other thing I thought was very interesting at the end of our conversation when she talked about politics and trying to find ways to find this zone of possible agreement between you know opposition parties, but but also between you know, you know environmentalists, say the forestry industry, and so on. I, th I thought that was very insightful, and I think the you know that ultimately we're dealing with some big challenges right now related to growth. And I do think we need to come together uh, and solve those problems uh, collectively, not just in New Brunswick, of course, across, uh, across Atlantic Canada, but I thought lots of good insight, lots of good nuggets of insight in this conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it, we're starting to see commonality in some of the conversations that we had, you know, with the mining uh, sector, you know, one of the things that was clear is that, you know, we need to obviously protect the environment, but we also have to have an approval process that allows us to mine the minerals that will allow us to meet net zero targets by 2050. So, you know, there is a balance between, you know, the need for protecting the environment and the need for the materials to allow us to protect the environment. You know, so we're, we're hearing more and more of those kinds of uh, uh, points that Andrea brought up. And I think they're, you know, I'm glad that we're having that conversation. It's helpful to at least start talking about them. Well, on that note, here is our conversation with Andrea Fanukis, CEO of Remsoft. Welcome to the Insights Podcast, Andrea. Thank you for inviting me. Pleased to be here. Before we start chatting about uh, your company, Remsoft, uh, I'd like to find out a little bit about your background. Can you give us a summary of your personal biography, where you were born, went to school, and how you ended up in New Brunswick and starting uh, Remsoft? For sure. Um, a little bit all over the map. I was born in Vancouver, and then I spent the first few years of my life in England. Um, most of my elementary high school was um, in Montreal. And then um, I spent a little time kicking around out west being a ski bum at Whistler. Eventually landed <laughs> at university um, in Ontario and at McGill. And then um, late 80s, second half of the 80s, Hugo, my husband, and I came down to New Brunswick UNB for graduate school, um, 1986, and we wanted to do our master's degree at UNB, and for us, we had a commitment that we're going to get a degree and get out, and that was our commitment, and um, that was 35 years ago, so we're, we're still here. Um, it it kind of grows on you, this place. Yeah, we want to we want to find out a little bit more about Rimsoft. It's probably not a name that a lot of uh, people are familiar with. You co-founded the company, I believe. Can you tell us about the uh, 
kind of uh, when you started the company and maybe uh, the rationale for why you got in the business to begin with and a little bit about the early days of the company. For sure. Um, it's funny, it was never really our intent to start a tech company, but it, in some ways, I know knowing our backgrounds, it was a bit of a given. Both of our parents ran their own businesses. I'm generation eight of a, of a couple of hundred year old manufacturing company. And my husband's dad immigrated to Canada, got engineering degree at night school, formed a consulting engineering firm. So it's kind of that independence is, is always been there. Um, Remsoft's actually our third and probably best initiative together. Through university, we had a um, silviculture company just bidding on tree plant contracts, stuff like that to pay the bills. In graduate school, which is really the genesis of Remsoft, we worked with a prof from UMB, the former dean, Ian Methvin. I don't know if either of you ran into him, really wonderful human being. And another fellow by the name of Kim Mann, who, who was up at the Forest Ranger School. And they were bidding on a contract and needed some computer modeling and some people to work with. So we, we formed a company with them that was called REMS Research, R-E-M-S, Resource Environment Management Systems. And we did that sort of through graduate school and for a couple of years. And it never made a lot of money, but it was really quite interesting. And we did some computer modeling. Really, um, Ian had a, um, he had a slide presentation he did in the 80s, and it was called The Modern Alchemy, The Transmutation of Dross into Gold, and it was Data into Insights. So he was way ahead of the curve on, you know, using data to find new insights. And the company was founded on that. Um, after a few years, they kind of got bored with being in business. Um, they went back to their respective jobs. And Hugo and I, this would be 92. We had, we had a couple of toddlers. Um, we just finished school and we're kind of like, well, now what are we going to do? Um, but the company, what it had done is, is it created a pretty good reputation. And some of the modeling work was um, quite well respected. So we came to an agreement with Ian and Kim that um, we could all each use the REM, R-E-M name if we wanted to go ahead and start our own business. And um, made they made sure that Hugo could retain any of the intellectual property that we developed in that company. So we that was our genesis. We sat around kind of going, what are we going to do? And um, Hugo really said, I just want to solve interesting problems, but I'm tired of writing code for people who don't quite know what they need. I'd rather write the code. I'd rather build the model and, and put it out there. And if they want to buy it, they can. And I said, all right, well, I'll see if I can figure out how to make a living off that. You write the code. I'll do the business. And, and that was, so it was sort of by accident that it started, but um, it's been a great partnership and it's worked really well since then. So that was 30 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that you're in the business of turning data into insights. That's the business that I was in too for 40 years and and on a different sort of basis, obviously. But I want to find out, you know, exactly what your company does. And maybe maybe you could give some examples to provide our listeners with a better understanding of of your company. For sure. Um, so we work, I think you guys both know, we work primarily in forestry and land management. We also do a little bit of work in the area of civil infrastructure and spare part optimization. Um, we develop and sell planning and analytics solutions that are based on some pretty deep math, operations research, AI, um, lots of data. And it, it's really about um, creating plans and solutions that 
help people figure out really complicated problems that that just have so many moving pieces that you can't use a spreadsheet for it. So um, a couple of examples. The one probably most people know about is a harvest scheduling solution. Which trees to harvest to get the optimal results financially, but also making sure that the habitat that needs to be protected is protected that the, the watershed is not negatively impacted, that you can transparently show the certific certification body that you're following their standards, and that over the long term, there's still going to be wood and um, the forests aren't going to be negatively impacted. You can figure out what to cut down next week, but you can't figure out a plan that says, what am I going to do over the next 100 years? that means the stuff I do next week is the right decision. So that's where you really need the, the advanced modeling that comes in. Another um, example is carbon sequestration modeling. That's always, well, always. For a good 15 years, clients have been building carbon sequestration into their, into their models and plans. But just in the last few years, we've seen a real shift to investors who are buying large areas of forest specifically for carbon. So instead of buying it for cutting down the trees and selling it for wood, they're buying it and making a bet that they're going to make some carbon out of it. And so they would need to use our software to model the different inputs and activities that will increase or decrease the amount of carbon sequestered. Um, so we go all the way from sort of a hundred year plan. Where should I locate a mill relative to the raw materials, which are for, which are trees all the way down to, um, in Brazil, making sure the ladies who, who make lunch um, know which week they deliver lunch to deliver to which field at which time. So it's a it's a huge range oh. of things that we work on. Uh, I, over my career, I did a lot of work with JDI. And um, I, one, one of the things that I heard really early in that relationship was uh, Casey Irving. Uh, when it came to forest, he said he had a hundred year view of the forest mm -hmm. and I think he was probably ahead of his time, and uh, I don't know if you do any work with JDI, but uh, you know uh, that long-term focus is so critical, isn't it? It's absolutely critical, and until you could do this kind of modeling that that looks at not just the implication of what you're doing now, but in ten years, if I do this, then that's going to happen, right. and um, you need to push that out, and it, it just so many combinations that the whole thing kind of exponentiates and you need a lot of advanced math to do that and they weren't able to do that until we had this kind of modeling you know one of the one of the challenges of forest companies as you know is that you know public opinion is really <clears throat> critical to give them license to operate and uh, the kind of things that you're doing is helpful in that regard to show the long-term uh, sort of planning process to ensure that the forest will always be available right yeah. a lot of people you know, in the public opinion research that we used to do, they worried that the forests were disappearing. <laughs> well, you know, if you fly over Atlantic Canada, it's basically forest almost everywhere you look. And people don't understand the uh, rigor that goes into, uh, you know, the harvesting process to make sure that there always will be forest to, to, to harvest. And obviously you're, you're, you're contributing to that uh, knowledge base for sure. I want to ask a little bit about the size of your organization. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, your employee base and, um, you know, maybe uh, where you are located. Uh, I, I know you do business around the world. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that part. Yep. Um, I, we are what I would call a pretty small company. We have about 65 people. 
Um, our head office is here in Fredericton, but we've also got an office and a separate company that focuses on spare part optimization in Ontario, but we have um, portrait people in Ontario. We've got an office in New Zealand and we have a subsidiary in Brazil. And then we have, um, like everybody else, people who work wherever they are. But our basic um, places of operation are New Brunswick, Ontario, New Zealand, and Brazil. That's uh, that's quite a range. That's you must do a bit of traveling, I guess, with that, do you? <laughs> we we do, and I that's a wonderful thing. I I think it's it's great. Um, you know, I don't know who else gets to travel the world and look at how land is managed and forests are managed. Every different place in the world is a fantastic job. Uh, just uh, again, this is one of the aside questions I like to ask because you've been in different parts of the world. How would you rate Canadian manage, forest management uh, with other other places? Uh, obviously, there are things that we can learn, but how, how do we stack up? Um, I I would say only fair. Canada has um, always been a little slow to adopt and a little slow to invest, and so they're just getting now into the operational level software of um, just making sure all the trucks and equipment and logistics and people are in the right place. We've got a much older workforce. And um, the wonderful, terrible thing about an older workforce is they do know what's going on. They're really good at it. If somebody's going to do it without modeling, it's somebody who's been there for a long time. But they don't know everything. More risk is what happens when they go. So we have some companies in Canada that have talked to us. So we know that they're going to be losing a third of their experienced guys in the next 10 years. Mm. So what happens? They bring on a young person. They don't have that gut level experience and been there, done that. They've got to have tools. But um, forestry in Canada, all forestry in general, but forestry in Canada has been a little slow to adopt the tools and get the technology working and they're, they're still trying to force the technology to match the way that their processes work, which were set up 30 years ago. And so there's a, and that's a normal thing in every business, but Canada's a little slow. Brazil's on fire. Um, Australia, New Zealand's on fire. Scandinavia's very strong. U.S. and Canada are sort of similar. But uh, just so you know, David has a connection to Brazil. If you need a representative <laughs> to go down there, <laughs> I did know we had yeah. um, we had a user group just finished. It was down there. It was rocking. There were thirty companies, and just they're engaged and on fire and share information like we don't see up here in North America. They're young. They're excited. Um, they'll talk to each other and say, "We did this. What did you guys do?" And and we can't get the companies up in North America to talk to each other like that. It's exciting down there. The trees down there grow. At, what are they to full maturity in six or seven years too? Which is a little bit of an advantage yeah. compared to forty years <laughs> life cycle here or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Although I'm told that uh, there's something in the in the in the I don't know, something in the trees that we grow here, there's some sort of advantage we have over those eucalyptus trees. So there's some advantage. Well, they grow so fast. It's about the length of the fiber. So Mm. um, we can, we grow better hardwood. I mean, they, they grow a lot of eucalyptus. It grows like nobody's business. It makes good pulp, but it, um, for the higher value wood, you know, they can make a lot of the molding and plywood, but, but high value stuff, they can't, uh, they don't have that. Yeah. There's still value in that long growing stuff. 
listen, Andrea, according to your website, you have clients in uh, 150 clients in six continents uh, and yep. that your clients collectively manage over a half billion acres of land. I guess I wanted to turn more to a business question. How do you develop international markets from a little place like New Brunswick? I find that fascinating, particularly software company. I mean, you know, if you think about the sort of natural resources companies, they have a product they're selling into a market. It's a commodity, but you're selling a very specific type of software. Can you tell our little listeners a little bit about how you develop those international markets? Yeah, um, there's a few pieces there and we kind of have a little recipe now, but in the early days we didn't. Um, first, I think we were just early to the game. So if people are looking for a solution, there weren't a lot of people in it. But secondly, and really importantly, you know, we talk about it a lot, but Frank McKenna's information superhighway, well, back in the 90s, that meant we could connect to New Zealand and Australia and and the states in ways that we never would have been able to imagine. So as people start to look for solutions, we could do a lot of our work through um, through email and through the internet. And that was game changing. If we couldn't have done that, I don't think we would have been able to start this business until another 15 years. And it's just a really great example of when a, a province or a leader has a vision for something um, that goes in early and just pays dividends for decades into the future. I think you, you two probably know that better than I do. So that was quite important. Um, and then I guess the last piece is, is the approach that we take. We do sell direct. I, we have to because the, it's a very specific area that, that takes a fairly fair amount of, of knowledge. But um, we have a bit of a recipe. One client is, is not a market. One or two clients in a country is, is really a recipe for disaster. It's very expensive to service them. If you only can get a client or two, you don't have a business there and you're really putting your, your own business at risk. So we tend to um, we tend to start by I usually will go and I will spend quite a bit of time doing a review with a couple of other people. We'll go and visit companies. We will talk to everybody we can talk to. We'll talk to the Canadian Trade Commission. We'll talk to the industry groups. We talk to business and we just understand what's going on and say, are do they have a need for our product? Are they, you know, is is the the situation right? Um, we did that in Brazil and said, yes, it's right. I did it in China. I spent, you know, a total of probably three months over there. And it was very clear to me that we would never make a good pre um, penetration into that market because the Chinese way is not to explore scenarios and make plans and say what ifs. That it's it's really you need to follow what the party's going to decide you're going to do. And so we heard story after story of somebody investing in a plantation and then politically the decision was changed. So we knew that we had no place in China. We knew we had a place in Brazil. So we, we visit, we talk, we learn, we confirm. And then um, I go looking for, so yes, there's a market and we could probably grow here. So what do we need to grow here? We need clients, but we also need a, at least a few consultants, definitely one and maybe more who can help serve the local market that understand this stuff that, um, so these are just, um, you know, forestry consultants, but people who could support, provide training, we might be able to subcontract them. Companies need to have local uh, consultants that they could work with for specific projects and things. Uh, so I go looking for those. 
Then we go to the universities. Is there an educational partner? We probably have 23 universities around the world who are educational partners. Some of them are teaching our tools. So with that, that feeds um, the job bank, but some of them are just doing research and we go looking for an educational partner who could help us. Um, sometimes they'll just invite us down and we'll do a joint training session, things like that. So we, we look for these specific pieces. And then the last thing we really need is early adopters. And we need a couple of adopters who are ready to, to jump on board, even though they haven't seen it be used in their region. And when you can get an early adopter, you know there's going to be university and consultants, so we can grow something around that. If all of those are in place, we know we can grow the market. If they're not in place, we've got to we've got to slow down and look really carefully. Do you have a who's your competition? Do, are there others other sort of niche players, or are there kind of big firms in your space? Who who do you actually compete with? Um, we have lots of. Um, Lots of types of competition. There aren't products that go to head-to-head. Optimization operations research is a fairly specific niche. But um, our competition would be companies who try and build their own solutions. We see that less and less, but it, it does occasionally happen. Um, it would be people that are trying to do it in a much more simplified way with a spreadsheet. They may not get the same results, but they're maybe not prepared to invest. More than competition, it's lack of data, lack of skills inside the company to manage the data, to understand. Uh, it's those kinds of obstacles that we have more than specific head-to-head competitors. And right now, it's all the companies know they need to invest. They probably have 10 projects. Um, all the projects are worth a couple of million. How do you choose? You can't do them all at once. And they're struggling. They're they're looking for leadership of, you know, how do I plan my digital roadmap? How do I make all this fit together? How do I see what's coming? That's that's the kind of thing that slows us down. Hmm. I wanted to ask you next about access to capital. I mean, you're a software company, but you do have capital needs in terms of developing the technology, but also growing your markets. Have you had any challenges accessing capital uh, in New Brunswick? Uh, is there anything you'd like to enlighten us on when it comes to capital and, and sources of capital? Yeah. Um, so in the early days, we really didn't, we looked into it. We really didn't pursue it for two reasons. One is there wasn't a whole lot for software companies. There just wasn't money available for software companies until um, investors figured out um, how to, what to lend against. And really that's recurring revenue, right? So, so that was, there wasn't much. And the other is frankly, for a lot of years, investors, you know, they didn't want to work with women. So it, it just was. Um, but so we really haven't, we, we, we developed a business that, um, that maintained a fair amount of cash that allowed us to meet our needs. We took on a little bit of debt when we wanted to do something bigger, a big investment, but we haven't um, actively looked for capital. I wouldn't, I would say New Brunswick's pretty good at, and you would know this as well as me, pretty good at for small scale. You know, um, if you've got a startup or you need, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, you can usually find it. But for companies our size and, you know, companies that are in business, working, have a model, have good leadership, if you want 5, 10, 15, 20 million, that's not, that's not here. You got to go and look for it somewhere else. That's, that's a gap. Um, I think the question is, is that a good or a bad thing? I think 
local money sometimes tends to be a little more patient and a little more forgiving money. But um, just because it's not in New Brunswick doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, coincidentally, we just uh, did a podcast with Rihanna Davis, the, one of the co-founders of uh, Sandpiper Ventures. I'm pretty sure you've heard of them. And they're de yes. dedicated to um, tech startups run by uh, women. So the good news is that it wasn't there when you started, but it, it is there, at least in a small way, in our region now. So that was a very interesting story to hear for sure. We want to talk a little bit about the talent pipeline. There's I think everybody's going through challenges with labor force. I just wonder what your experience has been in attracting talent to your organization, which is, uh, you know, headquartered, obviously, in Fredericton. Can you tell us about, uh, you know, what you're experiencing currently? It's tough for sure. Um, there's much more competition for people. Compensation demands um, have gone way up. Um, salaries are going way up. And the ability for even local people to work anywhere all means that um, it's tough to find people. But the flip side of the coin is we're also in a position where we can attract people who work anywhere and don't necessarily or wouldn't have considered us before because they didn't want to come to New Brunswick. So right. we do have people working for us in Nova Scotia, in Toronto, in Ottawa, in Australia. They just, that's where they are. That's where they want to be. And, um, you know, it was one of the good things that came out of the pandemic, I think, is our ability to attract really talented people. I would like to have them together. I think good things happen when people are together. There's more, a little more innovation, a little more engagement, but um, we still can attract some really talented people. I think um, the thing that I'm thinking about a lot is looking at the demographic and um, how we need to be attra attracting, recruiting, retaining people when the younger demographic are really quite awesome at what they do and their thinking is really good, uh, just, just terrific. Their expectations around a job are different from what what used to be the case. And we've got to get on top of that soon, early, understand it and not resist it because they have so much to bring to the table. And they want to see that you're doing something in ESG. They want to make sure they have a balanced and flexible life. They need to, they want to make their own choices. And um, what I see is them saying, look, I'll give you what I've got, but I want to do it on my own terms. And I think all of us as employers, especially in Atlanta, Canada, we need to figure out how to do that. And probably um, I sit on the board of a manufacturing company. We're not a manufacturing company, but but even there, that's got to happen. Right. If you want to. If you want to attract more people in manufacturing, you've got to look at diversity. You've got to look at women. You've got to look at others, which means you've got to change your culture. The, you know, the old boy culture has to change. You've got to think about making safety the top priority. You've got to think about the community, things that, that companies didn't have to think about before. If we can do that, we won't have a people problem. Well, we got to get them in the door. I think we'll talk about that too. We need more people. But um, <laughs> if we do this right, uh, we we would be a, a desirable place to be. Well, uh, I don't know what your experience is, but uh, it seems like uh, it's easier to attract people to come to uh, 
the Maritimes than it used to be, right? Uh, since the pandemic, is especially, people are, are looking uh, twice, I think, at uh, our region as a desirable place to uh, to live and work and bring up families. So have you seen any of that in your recruitment, that, that, that people are more, more willing to consider it as an option? Um, not specifically in my recruitment, but I have seen it in general. And I think the proof will be in the pudding. Can we get over some of the stuff that I just talked about, but also some of the challenges we have, the housing challenge, the healthcare mm. challenge. I mean, that's not specific to Atlanta, Canada or New Brunswick, but the p- places that figure that out are going to be the ones that are going to grow their populations. Uh, I want to take advantage of the fact that uh, you're now the chair of the uh, New Brunswick Business Council an organization uh, that is, uh, ba- you know, comprised of New Brunswick-based uh, CEOs in, in the province, to just ask you a few questions about that uh, that council because it's doing very interesting things. It obviously supports a positive economic development agenda for the province. Can you give the, our listeners a bit of a, a summary of what the council is up to these days and maybe what are the key focuses uh, of, uh, of, of priority? For sure. Um, right now, I think more than ever, our priorities are aligned with all these things we've just been talking about and, and with what the greater community is talking about. Um, the priorities of business are the priorities of, of New Brunswickers, healthcare, housing, climate change, growing our population, being better allies to Indigenous people in the province. Those are things that are important to council. Those are things that are important to the community. Um the members of the New Brunswick Business Council are CEOs who live and work in our community. So they, they've got a vested interest in making sure that their businesses can thrive, but also this is their home and, and they want it to be the home for their kids. So they care about what's going on. Um, and they do recognize that if we don't have decent homes for people that we attract to come here, if we don't have good health care, if we can't get them a doctor, um, if they don't feel comfortable that their kids are going get, to get a great education, they'll move on, even if we can't attract them. So we, we as businesses can't succeed if we can't do that. So some of the, the issues that we've been working on, we generally try and put together information to get out to, to help educate. You know, David, you've worked with us on some research and some studies to help understand some of the demographics and what's going on in the background. Um, we identified the rural housing initiative, which is, seems to be going really well and, and, and moving off on its own. But that's really all about making sure that the businesses who are operating in rural communities throughout the provinces aren't slowed down because they can't attract people because there are no homes for them to live in. So there's, they're putting together a co-op to, to start to build homes in those regions. On the healthcare front, uh, we're really trying to educate ourselves on, you know, where's the nugget of the problem and is there a place we can help? So our, our council will have, we've got a, we've got a virtual meeting on Tuesday where we have some speakers coming in to talk to us to help us understand better what's going on there. Um, on the net zero front, business councils um, working with UNB and Paul Maserol just to figure out how do we move faster on the push to net zero? I mean, we know that we can't sit back and wait for it to happen. Businesses are really not altogether sure about how to move forward. Um, there is a role for some research and the underlying methodologies and approaches that are required to track and report on 
on greenhouse gases. So what are what are some of the initiatives that we could take or policies or infrastructure that needs to be in place? That's an area that we're 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 trying to advance. And then, you know, population growth. We've been working on that for a couple of years, really particularly through immigration, which has been sort of crazy slow. Um, there are delays at the federal, primarily federal, but other government levels, but it just it's slowing down our whole ability to move forward. So those are a few examples of things that we're, we care about and we're interested in. I wanted to go a little bit deeper on the question of population growth. Of course, we haven't seen the level of population growth we're seeing now in, in certainly in our lifetime and, and even further back. We've added now about 51,000 people since July 2019, just in New Brunswick, and there's similar growth rates in Nova Scotia uh, and Prince Edward Island. Um, this growth has led to a lot more tax revenue for governments. That's one of the reasons why the government's running the big surpluses. I think they understand that. But as you indicated, it has led to shortages in housing, healthcare, education, and other services. What's the council's view and your personal view on population growth? Have we been growing too fast? Uh, it, you know, do you Do you think we're growing at a good rate now? But what should we be doing at the community to make sure we support this growth? Because if we're if we're not supporting it properly, the, you know these people will leave. Many of them will leave. Yeah, I think if if you went around to every individual CEO and council, that their opinion would be slightly different. But it's fair to say everyone agrees we we still need more. We need a lot more people every year. I think we have put out some numbers. Alex could get those for you in terms of what what we uh, what's required. Um, so the growth that has happened is good. It's just not enough. There are jobs there. People people could grow their business and hire more people if they had access to those people. So that part is good. But it is it is what goes on in the community that's going to make a difference. Um, it's um, it, it's the stuff we've talked about the healthcare, the the housing. We've talked about those. The other piece is. How when when you bring people in from other countries, how do you help them make New Brunswick their home? Right. Their culture is different. Their language is different. Their food is different. And many years ago, we weren't very good at it. I think we've gotten much better at it in terms of welcoming people, welcoming new cultures, welcoming new food. But we have to focus on that um, and make sure that that people um feel part of our community and they don't have to change themselves into a New Brunswicker to be part of New Brunswick, that we can we can adopt and appreciate parts of their life. And that's something that all of us have to do if it's going to work, because it'll take you a long way. If somebody feels part of a, a community and part of a bigger whole, they're going to be a little more patient while we work through the housing and the healthcare and the other other issues. But boy, we got to fix those, the bigger issues fast. And there are no fast fixes. So we've got an issue. Just want to jump in on the point that you made, because I've been talking about this for a long time. You know, uh, you know, we tend to be friendly, but not necessarily welcoming in, in, uh, mm -hmm. in our region. And we spent a long time trying to, you know, keep people out because we're worried about them taking our, the, the few jobs that we had. Right. So that attitude is persisting. I mean, why do we, call people from away, you know, come from away. It's like, you know, we've got to get over this. You know, we, we, we have a population that has been isolated, honestly, for decades. We have very little until recently diversity in our population. We don't know how to deal with it, as you mentioned earlier. We're starting to figure it out, thankfully. 
but we got we've got a long ways to go. And I get I, and I, I'm glad that you brought that message up that we out that we need to be a lot more welcoming, not just friendly, but welcoming, accepting, and helping people integrate into our community. So thanks for bringing that up. I um when I fly, you know, and and, and I land in Toronto and I go from the airport into the city, I'm free, free I take an Uber and I'm frequently picked up by an immigrant and I always ask them about their experience and I ask about Atlantic Canada um, mm. and the ones that most of them have never heard of it but the a, a few have been very clear to me I don't know if I'd meet anybody else that I know I don't know if I'd be able to buy my food I don't you know I want to hang around and listen to music with my friends that's an important thing um, so we have to be more welcoming we also have to try and encourage much more cultural activity um you know if if you went to live in another country you'd want to have your hamburger or whatever it is once in a while those things we have to make sure are available and and it's all coming i think it's happening we just have to do more don can you get maple syrup down there in california i think we can as a matter of fact there's a fair number of canadians floating around as best i can tell andrea i wanted to ask you about entrepreneurship i find your story so inspiring you were uh, early on, I think you're one of the oldest, if not the oldest, longest-standing software companies in New Brunswick. I don't know if you've ever analyzed that, but I, there's not a lot that have survived. Most of them have merged or or been taken over or closed. So I think that's a that in itself is a really important, impressive story. But I know the council is championing entrepreneurship. It's a focus area, and we know that about forty percent of our business owners are fifty-five and older. And I am concerned that we don't maybe have the pipeline of entrepreneurs. You said earlier that you're, I think you said your parents were uh, business owners and that is the number one indicator of uh, entrepreneurship, whether or not your parents were entrepreneurs, because if you're familiar with it, it's, it's more likely you're going to start a business. Now that's not all business people that start businesses had parents that own businesses, but it's a very high indicator. So I guess the question for you is, what do we need to do to foster more entrepreneurship in the region? And I'll, I, you know, you take that where you want, attract more entrepreneurs, develop more entrepreneurs internally. Like, what are your thoughts around how we can make sure that this place can continue to, to spawn really cool companies here, here in our province and region? I think it's an important question. And I, you know, I, I think I, a couple of things that I think about, um, one is to maybe broaden out our how we think about entrepreneurs right now we've got sort of startup as entrepreneurship and that that tends to focus on it to a heavy degree um and and a few things but they don't think about you know is there um a young electrical contracting business that looks around and says i could buy four of these guys who are retiring, I could, I could work out a deal to buy their business and, and make something bigger. So that whole transition piece, um, that's entrepreneurship just as much. And I don't know that we look at that piece of it. I think we think in a fairly narrow view around entrepreneurship. Um, and the other thing is, I think, um, you know, you need a good funnel. Um, and we we have not a bad funnel, but it kind of fizzles out sometimes. And so either they don't make it which is which is normal but they kind of stop at at you would know the numbers better than i what is it a million two million and then it just gets um sort of stalled and i know even in our own our own history i went back and looked at it a couple of weeks ago we stalled around two million for probably three or four years or up and down and up and down but 
there's a point there, you know, in, in businesses where you need to do more than the revenue says, and then you can make another jump and you go again and you get another 5 million and then you jump again. Well, what do we do about those companies that are stalled and why are they stalled? Capital's part of it, but big dreams are also part of it. Um, how do we get businesses who want to think about 20 million and then 50 million and then a hundred million? You know, if, if you want, if you want the unicorn, what about 50 companies at 50 million that, you know, that would meaningfully change things in the province. And so I think helping companies and, and all of us think about growth in terms of, of a much bigger view than maybe we do could, could make a difference. I'm not sure how you do that, but I think a lot of it is around, um, you mentioned that people whose fathers or parents had a business, you're more likely to, you're more likely to model something that you see. Women will aspire to higher positions when they see other women in higher positions. And so how do we get high-level senior executives in front of our entrepreneurs? Like what is a really, like a CFO of a, of a billion-dollar business? What do they do and how do they look at the financial statements? And what could somebody with a $2 million or a $5 million business learn from that? And what does a sales organization look like for a $100 million business? So for our smaller businesses to just see what it looks like to be bigger and understand how they could get on that path. I think that's um, it's certainly in the early years, it was one of the things that held me back. I didn't have a lot of mentors or models or examples to look at. And um, I think that as much as access to capital is, is something that keeps us small. You know, David and I have talked about this topic uh, a lot. Uh, you know, we're, we're obviously trying to understand why we are the way we are in this region. That's been the focus of our careers um, you know, over the last long period of time. One of the one of the theories that I'm coming to grips with, I guess, is you know we've been uh, we we have not been as entrepreneurial as other parts of Canada. Uh, consistently, uh, we have proportionally smaller percentage of private sector workers in the workforce than anywhere else in the country. Part of that, I think, I began to realize is the fact that we had no immigration for such a long period of time. And immigrants are much more likely to start their own businesses. They have, they're more risk tolerant. Of course they are. They're, they move to a new country. <laughs> so, you know, starting a business is not as hard because they're prepared to take risks. And now we're starting to see, um, you know, that uh, um, immigrant entrepreneurism starting to catch fire. And they don't actually need so much help because they, they're just prepared to go out and do it. So that missing link is finally in place. The other, the other thing that we've talked about a lot over the two years of this podcast is the education uh, system that we have in this region, and I think it's probably true for the rest of the country, does not allow people really any exposure to business as uh, a career option, uh, unless you're in junior achievement, which is a great program, by the way, and helps a lot. You know, we're not exposing our kids uh, to that possibility, which I think is a real, it's a real limitation. And, you know, uh, I've been advocating that personally for a long time. And, you know, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but like, you know, there are life skills that are business skills, right? Like marketing and sales. There's not one job that I know of 
that does not have a marketing and sales component to it. If you're trying to advance your career, you're in marketing and sales, <laughs> you know, and, you know, so there are life uh, skills that could be taught that would be very helpful. Accounting, finance, budgeting, those sort of things are life skills that have a business orientation. So look, I, I, I'm using the soapbox here to continue to promote the idea that education can play a role in supporting, uh, you know, entrepreneurism, I guess. But I just if I could jump Definitely in because I think right. yeah I, I just want to say that that part of the other thing is to make it part of the career path in general because not right. everybody wants to start a business right out of school but they should understand that if they start you know as a front desk clerk at a hotel they could end up running that hotel one day or they could end up owning a hotel someday so I think we haven't done a great job of of showing how entrepreneurship uh, fits into the career path. And by the way, I'd extend that immigration uh, a little bit, Don, to migration, because you will know right. that Andrea and Hugo right. were, were were migrants into the province, and and that process of moving from another jurisdiction, even within Canada, tends to show a higher a higher risk taking. Uh, you know that you, you've moved to a whole new place, a whole new community, a whole new uh, province. Um, yeah, so that's great. So I, I guess I'll flip it back to you, Don. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm also a migrant from another province too. So like, um, and and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I I came with different attitudes and I saw that early on. Like you know, I, I couldn't understand early on when I came to Atlanta, Canada. And maybe Andrea, you had the same impression. It's like like it's they they just didn't feel a confident to compete with anybody else. That that was the general sense. Now that's changed. Uh, a lot uh, since I, you know, arrived. But in, in in the early years, it just seemed that there was a resistance to, to thinking that this region was as good as other places in the world, and 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 that sort of inferiority complex was really evident to me as a new as a newcomer. And I was a newcomer at one point to this region. Now I, I'm really happy to say that that seems to have gone away, and uh, you know that that'll be good for us in the end. Uh, Andrea, before we end our conversation today, we'd like to ask you a little bit of, we always like to ask business leaders about their community and philanthropic work because we want to highlight the fact uh, that, you know, most successful business people give back to their communities <laughs> and, and don't get a lot of recognition for it. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your uh, charitable interest and the things that, that, that you and your organization have been involved in. For sure. Community involvement, that's always been a part of me. Um, I think it's a part of most most people. Uh, you know, it gives you balance in your life. It, it you know, for, for what, in terms of what we do, it it moves with interests and times. Sometimes over the years, I've worked at a very hands-on level. Other times served on boards, charitable foundations. Um, more recently, a lot of what I do is kind of ad hoc, working with an individual. I'm really kind of focusing on trying to help somebody else make a difference. They've got an idea that's going to make a difference. How can I help them? From the company's perspective, it's always been important. And Hugo and I have always been of the belief that the money that we make, um, and I think it's important to talk about making money and profit, and maybe that's something we don't do enough in the land of Canada. There's nothing wrong with making a ton of money. It's what you do with the money that you make that that's important. How do you choose how to direct it? But we've always believed that, um, a chunk of the money that we make, um, it was all earned by our employees and our employees should choose where it goes and how we give back to the community. So we, we, um, we take a good chunk every year, several hundred, close to half a million now over the last several years 
Um, and our, our team gets to decide where it goes. And they're giving it to um, things they might be involved in as a family, um, things that they care about in their community. It's their way of giving back to their community. So we've done things like built a mountain biking trail. We've run some tennis camps. So we've bought furniture for a senior's home. We bought a bus for um, a community. It just depends on what our team is interested in. We'll also, um, we also do volunteer work as a group. We'll do some work at Hyla Park, some stewarding work. But it is a, you live in a community, you got to be part of it. And I think, um, you know, most, I think most business people tend to believe that. It, 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 it just makes a difference. Before we end today, I just wanted to ask you where you are on the optimism scale. You you get around a lot. You've been to New Zealand and you've seen what's going on in Brazil and Scandinavia and elsewhere. Um, I'd like to ask you, how optimistic are you about New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada? Are you very optimistic, cautiously optimistic, or are you worried about our future as a region? I think we got some signaling of that in our conversation today, but maybe we'll end on on, on that question. I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. And if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I probably would have been more worried. Um, I think the pieces are in place. People coming and, um, and, and, and more diversity, more immigrants, those are just core. And, and that gives me optimism that, that we can get somewhere. I think to move from cautiously optimistic to optimistic, it lies in tackling the problems we we talked about. And um, I think that means that our government and therefore us as people and the people we choose to lead have to figure out how to work together. So in business, if you're negotiating a deal, you talk about a zone of possible agreement. You can't agree on everything. Find something. When, um, when forest industry and environmental groups work on something together, they're never going to agree completely, but they go and they look for what is something we both agree on and let's do that. And I think in our governments, we need to see them put down the term opposition and start looking for, even if it's one thing, what is our zone of possible agreement? We all know healthcare is an issue. Let's work together on it. I don't know if that's possible. Maybe I'm dreaming in technicolor, but if they could, it would stand the test of time. It wouldn't change with every government, but our leaders have to choose not to score points off everything. And if they're going to do that, we as voters have to vote for people who are going to be inclined to do that. That would make me hugely optimistic. I think we have it all there for us. We just need to work on some hard issues, and that means putting down a lot of differences and finding the zone of possible agreement and getting to work on it. Andrea, thank you for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Enjoy yeah, chatting with you both. Take care. Great learning about your, com- your company. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.